All right, our scripture reading today is from John 11. If you're uh, following along in the Pew Bibles, it's on page 897. John chapter 11, verse 1. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, Let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble, because he sees the light of the world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles, because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went to him and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, See how he loved him? But some of them said, 
Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out! The man who had died came out, his hands and his feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. This is the word of God. Pray with me. O Spirit of God, please, please show us the glory of God in the Son of God from the Word of God. Show us Christ. Reveal your glory through the preaching of your Word until the whole world hears, until the whole world knows that you are a good and gracious King. In Jesus' name, amen. We obviously just read a really long text, so it is my job to counterbalance that length with a short sermon, so please pray for me. But I want to kind of reorient us to where we are in the landscape of this book so far. We've been working our way through the Gospel of John for, for months now. I know some of you in here who are artists and musicians tend to weary of my sports illustrations. So I'm going to hook you up this morning. At every climax of a, of a, music, uh, of a movie or a song, there's a crescendo where the music gets the loudest, the most emotional, the most epic. But there's a moment right before the height of the crescendo. It's called the penultimate moment of any song or movie. It's epic, but it's not the epic est. That's today's text in John chapter 11. It's the penultimate scene in this book. So as the Gospel of John ramps up into its final victorious chord, I'd like to make four brief observations about Jesus this morning. Last week in John 10, we discussed the people in Jerusalem who were trying to kill Jesus. So Jesus and his disciples skip town. They go across the Jordan River. And while he's away, while Jesus is away, he gets word. He gets word that his good buddy Lazarus is sick and like bad sick. No coming back from this kind of sick. You have to understand here too that Jesus is super close with this family. Two sisters, Mary and Martha, and then their brother Lazarus. He loved them dearly, and they loved him too. In fact, they were such close friends that they sent a runner to Jesus to let him know, hey, Lazarus is sick. Can you come back and help us? We need you. When Jesus gets this message, he immediately hops on the first donkey to Bethany and makes a beeline to be with his family. No, it's not true. Hopefully you're reading along the text and recognize that that wasn't true. It's the exact opposite of what we might think. As human beings, he delays for two full days instead of going to be with this family who is grieving. And the way John weaves this sequence here, I think it's pretty interesting. After hearing Lazarus was sick, verse 5 reads like this. Jesus loved Martha, Mary, and Lazarus, so he stayed two days longer where he was. So there's 
causation at play here in the text. Because Jesus loved this family, he didn't rush to their side. What is happening here? And to make matters worse, during the delay, Lazarus' condition worsened, and he died. You and I probably would have been absolutely heartbroken if we waited just a little too long to go see a loved one, and they died during our delay. But not Jesus. Jesus doesn't even regret it one bit. Look at verse 15. For your sake, I am glad that I was not there. Well, Martha does not appreciate Jesus' tack here at all. It's the first thing out of her mouth. Look there at verse 20. If you would have been here, my brother would not have died. I mean, they'd sent word to him all the way back in verse 3, right? They clearly expected Jesus to show up. They probably poked their desperate heads out the front door of their house every hour on the hour for days. But Jesus, their one last hope to fix Lazarus, painfully absent. His delay is literally ripping the hearts from their chests. So sad. What's happening here? Well, I think sometimes Jesus delays to deepen belief. Jesus delays to deepen our belief. Have you ever had to wait for something that you really wanted? Maybe you ordered something from Amazon and the package got delayed. Or maybe you're counting down the days until Avengers Endgame comes out later this week. I know some of you in here are. Or maybe you're so pumped for the newest Star Wars film that's coming out at Christmas time. Kids, maybe you cannot wait until summer break gets here. But it feels like time is dragging so slow. I experienced just this feeling a few months ago. I listened to a lot of podcasts. And typically, I like to speed them up to one and a half or two times the speed to accelerate my pace of learning, to learn more. And I usually listen to them while I'm doing an exercise program called P90X. I know, I know, most of you listening to listen to some kind of pulse-pumping music while you work out. I listen to podcasts about how Dollar Shave Club and DoorDash and Burt's Bees skyrocketed to success. Great podcasts. I can tell you about it later. Maybe this is why my progress is a little slow, I don't know. But the other day while I was doing burpees or squats or push-ups or puking or something, I don't know, I had the stroke of brilliance. What if I could play my podcast at double speed while also exercising at double speed? What if I could speed up the pain and just get it done with? Double the learning, double the exercise, half the time. Somebody write that down. That is ready for market right now. But exercise doesn't work that way, does it? It does not work that way. Exercise is not something that you can speed through and expect to see results. It's the same with our spiritual formation. It's not something that we can speed through and expect to see results. It is precisely in the slowing down that Jesus does his work in our lives. It is in the painful delays that our belief deepens. It strengthens dependence. It bankrupts independence and shows that the surpassing power belongs to Jesus. So if Jesus had come to Bethany just a little bit sooner and just healed the disease before Lazarus died, he would have provided a less powerful demonstration of deliverance and a less convincing assurance that he was who he said he was. 
His delay is actually what makes this, John 11, the penultimate scene in the gospel. He was delaying to demonstrate that he had the power to completely obliterate an enemy that was even more frightening than disease. It's an enemy that has haunted humanity since the beginning of time. So John 11 is meant to elevate our perspective, to to resurrect it above the trees so that we can see the forest and believe with all of our hearts that God is up to something big and beautiful, whether or not we, like Mary and Martha, can presently see it. Maybe some of you in here today can really relate to the heartache and abandonment that Mary and Martha must have felt in these moments with Jesus not showing. There are some of you here this morning that seriously question the idea of God and certainly the idea of a loving God based on your own past experiences. At Trinity, we never want to shy away from questions like these these uncertainties that we all feel. We want to look at these uncertainties and doubts square in the face through the looking glass of God's word. So if there's any kind of abuse in your background, any kind of neglect, or any kind of significant loss, significant darkness, this question has probably bounced around in the hollowness of your own soul at some point, just like Martha. Where were you, God? Where were you when I was hurting? You could have fixed this. Well, many of you know that I have four daughters, four girls. And you can imagine the amount of shampoo and conditioner we go through. And I get it, that line item in our budget is destined to grow exponentially in the coming years. But while some of our girls are still little, we have this spray-in conditioner that we use for them. It's a detangling spray that helps us brush their hair without ripping the scalps off their heads. Really, this detangling spray is for any time mommy isn't around. It's the detangling spray for daddy. She can do it gently no matter what. I need the spray if they want to keep their scalps. But I just want to be upfront with you here this morning. For all of us that have tangled pasts of unmet expectations from God, I don't have the secret detangling spray for you this morning. I do not have all of the answers for you this morning. But I do know that Jesus is speaking into your life and saying, let me handle your past. Let me guide you into a glorious future. Because Jesus alone untangles the past and pulls the future into the present. He untangles our pasts and pulls the future into the present. Jesus' delay got Mary and Martha all wound up. I mean, they were a hot mess. It utterly confused Martha. Where were you, Jesus? You could have fixed this. I think it ticked Mary off. Look at verse 20. When Jesus was approaching, Mary remained seated in the house. She couldn't even stomach going out to see Jesus. And then poor Lazarus. Somehow, in the story about Lazarus, we forget about Lazarus. I mean, this is the dude who was fevered, probably puking his guts up, having difficulty breathing, sweating, and weak. Martha's confused, Mary's ticked, and Lazarus is dead. And Jesus delayed. For this? What? Yes, he did. He let all of it happen, and he was glad about it. Verse 15. I think Jesus delays so that 
He can be the one untangling the web of confusion that they felt and we feel. He's glad he wasn't there so that he could help them do two things. Help them sort through their unbelief and frustration, sort through unbelief and frustration, and then second, solve a conundrum that humans hadn't and still haven't solved. He wanted to sort through things for them and solve a problem for them. And so it's statements like the one we're about to read in just a moment, where Jesus presents himself as the sole solution to a problem that we all face, that none of us have been able to kick. He claims to be able to eradicate something that we all fear. And this next sentence makes Jesus impossible to ignore. Whether you're a Christian or not this morning, you have to grapple with this. You must decide. You must land on one side of the line or the other. Was Jesus lying or was he telling the truth? How does Jesus begin detangling this pressing problem for the sisters? Well, look at verse 23. Jesus says, your brother will rise again. In other words, Lazarus is going to be restored to order, to the way he's supposed to be. So yeah, is there something really jacked up and messed up about death? It's twisted. Death is the enemy none of us can seem to kick. We all surrender to it at one point or another. And Martha immediately believes Jesus when he says this. She's like, yeah, 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 I know Jesus. When it's all said and done, the dead in Christ will rise. She's counting on this reality. But Jesus gently pushes back in verse 25. He says, no, 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 Martha. You don't understand the full depth of what I'm saying. I am, not I will be, but I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And whoever, and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. So there's a sense in which Lazarus never died, says Jesus. For Jesus, the resurrection and the life isn't some future event way out in front of us. It's here and now, available to all of us. Are there questions without answers that you have and that I have? Yeah, there are. But is Jesus the only one with the detangling spray? Yes, he is. He's the only one who can, in the end, answer all of your questions with a thoroughly convincing answer because he's the all-wise and all-knowing God, and he's about to prove it right here in John 11. Jesus says, you don't have to wait to get your answers, to flourish. He says, I am the life. All who believe in me will not die. And you have to take a step back here to appreciate the irony of the situation in which Jesus is speaking this. Come on, Jesus, how can you say that? He's dead, look at him, Laz is dead. He's not coming back. Well, they were right, in a sense. It was pretty ironic. And there was only one thing Jesus could do to ratchet their confidence to his words and to ratchet our confidence to his words. There was one thing he could do. The question was, would he do it? Or could he do it? Trinity, visiting friends, you do not have to untangle your own broken, sinful, doubting past. And you don't have to shore up your eternal future after your heart beats its last. Both can be done simultaneously by placing your trust 
in the king of the ages. Maybe in your life right now, your experience is that God is delaying for whatever it might be. But you can bet that he is delaying to strengthen you, to mold you more and more into the image of his son. Jesus alone can untangle your past and pull your future resurrection into the present. So much so that even when you die, it'll be like you never died. Even when you die, it'll be like you never died. That's how sure of a thing your resurrection is, according to Jesus. Well, next, we find Jesus showing us that he is the premier leader in all of history. He's the quintessential superior, the worthy king. But he doesn't do this, he doesn't convince us of this through a raw display of power. At least not yet. He is persuasively these things because of what we see in verse 33. Look at it. Jesus was deeply moved and greatly troubled. Verse 35, Jesus wept. Verse 38, Jesus was deeply moved. Some of the original language here gives this idea that the wind was knocked out of him when he came upon the scene. He lets out a gasp and succumbs to tears himself. The reality of a friend's death is setting in to the God-man. His friend is gone. His other friends are grief-stricken, and Jesus' own shoulders begin to convulse in tears. Tears streaming down his cheeks. The maker of tears is crying his own. Jesus demonstrates empathetic care. Friends, we do not have a maker who cannot empathize with our weakness and with our deepest sadness. He has, in every way, been tempted like you have been tempted, felt sad like you have felt sad. He's felt what you feel. He's empathetic. He's not distant, which makes him eminently trustworthy. So Jesus walks from their home to the graveside, which is a cave in the side of a hill. The area is thick with grief. Jesus' own tears stream down his cheek. Then he makes a curious, totally offbeat request. In verse 39, take away the stone, Martha. But Jesus, Lazarus has been gone for days. His body's going to stink. Don't do this. Now, perhaps you've seen enough CSI or Dateline or whatever to know, to know this already. But do you know what happens to your body when you die? Pardon the graphicness here. But within three minutes of your death, your muscles begin to relax. Then over the course of the next three hours to 36 hours, your body stiffens. Meanwhile, the blood has stopped moving. It settles. It cools. And then gravity pulls it down into a pool. The slowing of the blood drives the body temperature down. And then at the two to three day mark, your body begins to discolor, and then the irreparable onslaught of decay begins to set in. Then, like Martha says here, your body will begin to stink badly. And so they wrapped Lazarus. They placed him in a bench, in a tomb, on a bench in a tomb. So picture his body in that dark, cold, earthy tomb. Stiff, cold, discolored, distended. He smells. 
real bad. And up steps Jesus. Hey, move that stone. Martha, Jesus, no, no. Jesus, Martha, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? The tear ducts stop. The pulses quicken. What is he doing? Does Jesus know what he's doing? Verse 41, someone moves the stone. Verse 42, Jesus talks to the Father. Verse 43, Jesus cries out, Lazarus, come out! Was the delay to deepen their belief going to work? Was he going to untangle the confusion of the last week in just a moment? Was he going to usher in future resurrection into present reality? Would Lazarus the mummy emerge victorious over death, or would their faith sink into the cold grave with him? What must that moment of history have been like? Can you imagine? Every eye unblinking, every heart unbeating, every pulse racing, the collective attention of a crowd riveted to this small hole on the side of a mountain. Then, according to John, in a single moment, every single aspect of Lazarus's death and decay was undone. His rigid heart began to beat. His cold blood unpooled and began to course back through his veins. Life miraculously surged back into his muscles, and they loosened. His cheeks flood with color. His eyes open. His abdominal muscles engage as he sits up on that bench. He moves his legs over the side of the bench. His once dead quads and hamstrings lift his living body. His calves carry him forward to the front of the tomb. What once was dead is now alive. Weeping and mourning turned into dancing and shouting in just a moment. Can you imagine? He's alive. Lazarus is alive. Oh man, the celebration must have been crazy. Three words, and Jesus transforms this funeral into a party. The godliest, most raucous party you ever saw. Jesus turns funerals into parties. Jesus is the only reason any of our funerals can ever be parties. And I just want to let you know one thing. I hope that my funeral is a party. So if you're there and it's dead, please transform it into a party. Because I won't be dead. Though I die, yet shall I live. Death was reversed. The last enemy, the one that'll get all of us, finally had someone who could puff his chest and stand up to it and defeat it. Thank you, Jesus. Well, that is great for Lazarus. But Josh, you do know that we're all going to die, right? You get that. Yes. But Jesus' declaration that though we die, yet shall we live, can be true for you too. And it's only possible because the Gospel of John doesn't end here in John chapter 11. I mean, if I'm John's editor, I'm like, dude, this is a great and surprise ending here. If I were you, I'd leave it right here. No one saw this coming. It's a convincing, victorious, compelling way to end this thing. Let's just, let's, let's wrap it up here. Just cap it off with Jesus on top and the party's in full swing. 
Thankfully, the Holy Spirit is John's editor and not me. So remember how I said that this little part of John is the penultimate moment of the book. It's not the ultimate moment. It's penultimate because there's something even better coming. I already described the moments of Lazarus' resurrection, but briefly, I'd like to describe the closing moments of the Jesus story for us this morning. So, throughout the Gospel of John, God has become man, the man Christ Jesus. He's lived, and now for crimes he didn't commit, he's dying on a stick of wood that's been shoved into the earth at the crest of a hill. The Bible tells us that while he hung on that cross, he was fixing a problem. And it's no small problem. We all, every last one of us, is under the wrath of God. Whether or not you've ever said this out loud or acknowledged it in your mind, we know this instinctively. You're not the person that you should be. Your mind wanders to dark places. Sometimes your desires are really decadent. You like to stroke your sin rather than slay it. That sense, that sense that you're not who you should be, comes from the fact that you are a created being. And as a creation, you owe allegiance to your creator. We've offended God with our pride, with our self-sufficiency, with our partiality, with our anger, with our lust. We are a collective mess, and God hates it. He is furiously against our mess. You see, in God's economy, sin requires payment. But it's a payment that none of us can afford. This past week, I was driving down Easton, it's Thursday night, driving down Easton Road, and there was a church there that had a sign out front. It said this, Wednesday evening penance service, service at 7 p.m. Wednesday evening penance service. And I just wanted to go in there that night, Wednesday night, and shout, you're wasting your time. Don't do it. You cannot afford the payment. You don't have it in you to pay the penance. Trust me. There's only one rich enough in mercy, rich enough in grace to pay. Friend, if you're stuck with God's bill for your sin, you're not going to be able to pay it. You are doomed. That's the whole reason Jesus had to come in the first place, to pay a debt that we couldn't pay, to pay it in full. And this is why the cross, if you've ever thought about it, is so violent and bloody. It's a little picture for how costly our sin really is. So Jesus is torn to pieces and then laid to rest in a tomb much like Lazarus's. And just like Lazarus, on that Saturday when Jesus was lying silent in that tomb is where so much of our lives of faith are lived. In the in-between. The delay, the silence, the waiting, the confusion, the uncertainty is probably excruciating in your own life. But wait. Clarity and certainty will come, friend. Wait. Hold on. The delay with Jesus in the grave would only serve to deepen their belief, much like that with Lazarus. And so if, if our sin was enough to keep Jesus in the grave, if his body stays there in that grave, if his heart doesn't begin to beat, if the blood never begins to flow again, if his lungs 
don't fill with oxygen, we'd all be doomed forever to pay our own penance, the own, our own penalty for our own sin. And so all of our collective attention should be riveted to Jesus' dead, stinking, cold, discolored body lying in that tomb. But if the pulse does quicken, and if the blood pumps, and if the body rises, then we know, we know that our Redeemer lives, and we don't have to pay for our crimes because Jesus paid it all. There's none left to pay. So see it. Jesus' beaten, bruised, and lifeless body laid to rest on a cold slab in a dark, earthy grave on the side of a hill. His memory and legacy fading already. But then, early on Sunday morning, on that first Easter morning, hear this poem. His heart beats. His blood begins to flow. Waking up what was dead a moment ago. And his heart beats. Now everything has changed because the blood that brought us peace with God is racing through his veins. And his heart beats. He breathes in. His living lungs expand. The heavy air surrounding death turns to breath again. He breathes out. He is word and flesh once more. The Lamb of God slain for us is a lion ready to roar. And his heart beats. He took one breath and put death to death. Where is your sting, O grave? How grave is your defeat? He rises, glorified in flesh, clothed in immortality, the firstborn from the dead. He rises and his work's already done. So he's resting as he rises to reclaim the bride he won. And his heart beats. You know, Lazarus is the only dude I know of who has ever died twice. He would die again, but not Jesus. He trampled over death by his own death that Easter morning, and he never looked back. Romans 6, 9, we know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. And so for all of us who are in Christ, death no longer has dominion over us. So as we close today, I want to echo Jesus' question to Martha there in verse 26. He says, Martha, do you believe this? Friends, I want to encourage us this morning not just to believe in a God. Don't just believe in the good place or the bad place. Don't just believe you'll hopefully make it into that good place because hoping won't get you there. Only Jesus can get you there. Because Jesus raises the dead and is himself the resurrected redeemer. That's kind of a portable truth for the road today, a big idea to take with you. Jesus raises the dead and is the resurrected redeemer. In another place in the Bible that talks about the resurrection of dead people, Paul anchors the hope in Jesus' resurrection with three things about Jesus. And we'll close here. Here's the good news. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. He was buried. He was raised on the third day. And Paul says that this is what you must believe in 1 Corinthians 15, that Jesus died, that he was buried, and that he rose again for you. Oh, I want that for you today, my friends. So badly want that for you. Believe that Jesus raises the dead 
and that he himself is the resurrected king. Will you pray with me? Lord, we believe. Help our unbelief. We need help to believe more fully. So I pray, if there's anyone in here today that doesn't know Jesus, that hasn't believed in the resurrected king, I pray that you would do a work of life in their souls today, that you would raise their souls from the dead, put spiritual oxygen in their spiritual lungs, and give them life eternal for the glory of your Son, for the good of their soul. Amen.